I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A formal electoral alliance to defeat this alliance of the elite and mob which is what fascism far-right politics is, that's going to have to happen in the context of defeating Trump. And I'm, I'm not certain that Biden is the, the right front person for it. There is a existential war for the future of the very society in which, for me, left-wing politics, social justice, climate justice, racial and gender justice, none of them can happen in a country like the Luhansk People's Republic. Hello and welcome to Behind the Lines, the new geopolitics podcast with me, Arthur Snell. I'm a former diplomat who now works as a consultant, writer and podcaster. I'm active in international affairs from Ukraine to Yemen and a few places in between. In this podcast, I'll be talking to the best informed people out there about geopolitics, about the big things shaking our world now and about the things that will be in the future. We're going Behind the Lines. In 2021, Paul Mason, a veteran journalist familiar to viewers of Newsnight and Channel 4 News, published a book called How to Stop Fascism. His book came in the aftermath of the January the 6th insurrection in Washington, D.C., and the spectre of rising authoritarian nationalism across the world. A year later, Paul found himself in Kyiv just 24 hours before Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine, as 21st century fascism began to more literally imitate its 20th century forebear. Since then, Paul has become an urgent advocate of the need to take this conflict seriously for what it is, an existential threat to the post-Westphalian world order. I spoke to Paul about fascism in its modern forms, about the need for Western countries to support Ukraine more forcefully, and about the failure of some on the left to understand the realities of this threat. I hope you find it interesting. Paul, welcome. It's great to be here. Uh, Paul, you are a prominent journalist. You've, You've been in a variety of roles, and more recently, you've taken quite a forward position as a campaigner, definitely on the left side of politics. And you wrote in 2021, How to Stop Fascism. And a lot of fascism has happened since that time. Uh, So how would you sort of characterise the development of this very dangerous and worrying trend since the moment you wrote that book and where we are now in 2023? So my book, How to Stop Fascism, History, Ideology, Resistance, was finished just after the January the 6th insurrection. Uh, In fact, I pitched the book to my publisher on the basis that something bad would happen at the end of the Trump presidency. Um, I expected them to try and rig the election. Of course, they did try and rig the election, but they failed to rig it. Uh, I expected violence on election day, and there was some. But um, 
it didn't surprise me. Um, but what the book, you know, the book is obviously about much more than Trump. But if we start with Trump, what what we're, what I'm trying to say to people is stop obsessing about trying to fit uh, phenomena like Trump, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the MAGA movement into political categories that rigidly divide right-wing populism from fascism. Uh, the, we need those political categories. Um, and what we've observed in the late, uh, the last quarter of the last decade is that you know, any idea that uh, right-wing populism could act as a firewall against real fascism uh, evaporated. The firewall, as I put it in the book, is on fire. Yeah. It's a conduit to fascism. Gramsci, observing the rise of Benito Mussolini's fascists in Italy, said something that I think remains very profound for us. He said, fascism's an elemental process. It's not necessarily something that's simply produced by class forces. It's it's just a human process that, that's, that gets beyond control. And I think getting people to understand that what we are in, both worldwide and within specific stressed countries, is a fascist process, a process of social disintegration that's what really the book focuses on. So trying to understand Trump as a pro as a product of a process of social disintegration in America is far more fruitful, I think, than trying to play the game of political categories and say, okay, well, he doesn't have a leather jacket, he doesn't form, he doesn't hold militaristic marches, but the oath keepers do. You know, it's kind of it, we understanding that we're seeing a process of breakdown in Western society, which is scary much scarier than a bunch of people strutting around, 200 of them with flags and leather jackets. Um, that's what's going on. Now, since 2021, um, what we've seen, we've seen Trump double down. That's the, an important thing. His, his present candidacy in the American electoral system is an insurrectionary candidacy. Whether he survives, uh, whether he stays out of jail is a question. What is not in question is that if he were to win then the premise of winning was that the 2020 election was invalid uh, and that, that the last four years um, have been an invalid presidency. And I think that that tells us what Trump would do. He's already saying he regards Mark Milley, the, the outgoing chief of the general staff uh, in, in the United States, as a traitor who deserves execution. Those are, those are quote-marked words. Now, add to that the... I think the biggest evolution, obviously, is the evolution of Putinism from word to deed. Yeah. Implicit within Putin's uh, Eurasian, uh, sort of Eurasian Russian ethno-nationalism was the idea, and he said it you know, in the 2021 essay, um, that Ukraine is an illegitimate country. It just has no independent existence uh, as a culture or a nation independent of Russia. Um, that was in the word. Um, also in the word was the proposed draft treaties of December 2021, where he says, look, uh, the West, you've got to hand back Eastern Europe to, to, a, as a, to become a neutral buffer zone between Russia and the, and the West. Um, and the international treaties on which which the global order is based are irrelevant. But then the deed, the deed happens 22nd of uh, February 2022. And um, that's the difference. We've seen we've seen genocide enacted, I would argue, certainly uh, crimes against humanity. You know, there is this escalation in you know, war crime, crime against humanity, genocide. I think there is an argument that the Russian army has perpetrated genocide because, and indeed, what, look what the International Criminal Court has said with regard to Putin himself, uh, his role in the kidnap of hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian children. So that's a thing. Coming on top of what? Coming on top of, you know, my book starts with a description of a pogrom in, uh, in New Delhi. Uh, you know, Trump actually arrived. Trump flew in. And as Trump, Trump flew in, the BJP and RSS militias went into Muslim areas and started killing people. Um, hmm. We live in that world. And the, the frustrating thing, both as a journalist and a political activist, is to see not simply uneducated and ill-informed people ignoring 
this big picture. But the very people who should be mono-focused on it, you know, the liberal intelligentsia, the political, the professional political class, the intelligence services, the civil service, see it as a kind of minor, minor interesting off, off stage detail to the world they want to live in, which is the world of administering a capitalism that is disintegrating beneath their feet. That's, um, uh, as you put it that way, it, it, it's, you can start to see that this is a global issue rather than a sort of in, a set of individual countries with, with difficult politics. Um, and one of the things I wanted to pick up on is this point about sort of categorization, because it seems to me that what people do, and in fact, there's a, as it happens, there's an article today in the Financial Times where it, it's sort of making the argument, Janan Ganesh making the argument about whether or not the Conservative Party counts as the hard right. And pe- people constantly sort of try to pick apart categories. And of course, that in a way, fascism is, 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 a, is a difficult word because it allows people to then start having arguments about Nazism, which of course is, mm. is a subcategory. Um, but is, do you think that this is part of the problem, that, that the word is unhelpful, that it actually it, it allows people to sort of p- play the man and not the bull? No, I think the word is helpful. Um, and although, you know, Ernst Nolter is an incredibly uh, divisive and controversial German historian on, of the conservative right, indeed, who, yeah. who, in trying to understand where fascism came from, ended up trying to apologise for it in his, in his later life. I think Nolter um, can teach us things about what fascism is. Um, what he basically says, and he, forgive the, the the you know Germans are very technical language, but and, and even translated it, it sounds quite uh, academic. He said it's 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 the it's the organised and violent refusal of transcendence. That's what fascism is. Now, if you replace the word transcendence with freedom, hmm. I think you know uh, other German theorists of fascism, uh, Eric Fromm, the the psychiatrist wrote a book called Fear of Freedom. It's what it is. It's the fear of freedom. I, my, my version of what fascism is, is it's the fear of freedom triggered by a glimpse of freedom. Yeah. I think that what we're, why, why it's back, and it is incontrovertibly back, is because we're actually closer to freedom than many people think. If we are free of carbon, we'll be free of a lot of the excrescences of a carbon extractive society, like big yeah. oil companies, yeah. uh, like big oil companies with hegemonic political influence. Um, if we are free of binary gender relationships, we'll be free of 40,000 years of human uh, stereotypical behavior. Um, so I think in a way it's logical, isn't it? That as, and, and Nolte says this, even though you know I am not a supporting Nolte. You know he became a apologist for Nazism. Nolte says, you know, when people see what freedom looks like, a section of the population whose entire being depends on it not happening tend to go over to extreme forms of pessimism, despair, and violent reaction. So we, you know. Fascism is not caused by Hitler. It is not caused by the SS. The SS and Hitler are are the effect of fascism. The the co- you know the, the 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 primary impulse is to see tens of thousands of middle class, lower middle class peasants, you know, farmers, and some working class people go over spontaneously to a worldview in the nineteen thirties that said, you know, kill the Jews. Um, Kill, it didn't say, you know, let's not like the, you know, it, the idea that, 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 that it, nobody knew they were going to do this. That's, they, they wanted to expel Jewry from, from German Christian society. But that was secondary to the main thing, kill the Bolsheviks, kill Marxism, um, because it's going to lead to a form of freedom, a human freedom that is inimical to, to our existence. So if you can't see that, in modern America, if you can't, you're blind. If you can't see it in Hindutva, the 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 Hindu nationalism that that inhabits this world of highly organised, militarised uh, militias, the RSS. Um, if you can't see it uh, in Bolsonaro on horseback, riding you know riding on horseback, 
to call for the shutdown of his own Supreme Court, then you're just missing something. Um, it is real, it's a mass phenomenon, but it can be defeated. Um, and a large part of my work, both in politics and, and in, in, in writing, the history and uh, the journalism of now and the history of fascism, is to, is, is to convince people that it is defeatable. It was defeated in, in largely across the Western world. There were fascist challenges to democracy in the 30s and they were largely defeated. You could argue there are structural reasons in the countries where, where it's, it, it triumphed. But a large part of that, I would argue, was down to the subjective failures of major political forces, not least of which being the German Communist Party and the German Social Democratic Party in the 30s. And I suppose, um, it, in a way, the, when fascism takes these uh, specifically violent forms, and you know, the mention of the BJP is a great example because I think it's, it, it pro poses profound problems for Western democracies. There's, there's a lot of sort of talk of how there's a, a global alliance of democracies and India under Narendra Modi is put in that alliance. And, and that to me seems quite problematic. Um, but is, is, there, is there something with uh, a kind of cynical right-wing populism that probably isn't fascist, uh, but seems to enable some aspects of that. And I'm, you know, we're talking the week of the Conservative Party conference and setting aside a debate about ideology. Um, one of the most notable things about this conference has been the complete departure from reality. So there's a big debate about the meat tax, which is not a real thing. There's a big debate about 15-minute cities, which is a you know a right-wing conspiracy theory that's that's taken uh, sort of root online. Um, and and you you start to see that uh, the 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 methodology of this party is to create fear about things that don't exist, and then sort of stand up and say, well, we're the ones to prevent the fear happening. It's a playbook. It's a playbook that is lifted straight from Trump. It's lifted straight from Modi. It's lifted from Viktor Orban in Hungary uh, and from the Law and Justice Party. Um, according to political science, none of those parties are fascist, and I would agree. The point is that they become accelerators, and and the accelerators of 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 the fascist ethos. I would say that it, it is incontrovertible. For example, that the so the, the, the core proposition of modern fascism is the great replacement theory. Uh, the most, most succinctly summarized by Renard Camus in a book in 2012, um, a French gay uh, right-wing philosopher. Okay, so great replacement theory says that, um, that immigration is a plot by somebody to replace the white Christian population of the global north with darker non-Christian invaders. Now, it's important to stay with the language here. Um, it, so once you, if, so, so I'm a quarter Jewish and uh, my mum was half Jewish and I grew up aware that a genocide had taken place against people. I, you know, I've, got, I've got DNA relatives all over America, uh, none in Eastern Europe. Uh, because they they were all you know, at some point massacred, and so if someone said to me, "Genocide is a threat to you," I think I would take up arms. I'd have no compunction about about shooting people who are trying to do it. I mean, that's a logic. That's a, the thing on which the state of Israel is based. Uh, whatever we think about its behaviour, that's that's the assumption. No, if you say to the white population of Britain, Canada, America, France. They're coming for you. The invaders are coming to genocide you. Inva the invasion is a form of genocide against you. What does it do? It legitimizes violence. So suddenly, the racism of, of a party like UKIP, in, say, 20 years ago, we don't like foreign food. We don't like hijabs. Uh, you know, we don't like the fact that there's different music playing out of different people's cars. That's a kind of xenophobia. But the fascist ideology focused around the great replacement theory is an incitement to violence, to a violent solution. It's an existential threat to you. Now, what, what we're seeing in the Tory party is both in the Tory party and especially in its chosen platform, which is GB News, is the conscious adoption 
of Great Replacement ideology. And Great Replacement leads to a series of conclusions. Um, so so in immigration as a form of genocide against white people, who's to blame is the second question. And who's to blame are feminists for lowering the white birth rate and human rights lawyers for empowering migrants. That's, that's the kind of pantheon of who's bad. Question three is, who planned it all? Well, you know, the Marxist, the, the, the total number of Marxists in Britain, as you know, the SWP and, 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 and maybe the Morning Star, is, is it in low thousands? Um, so it can't be them. It's the cultural Marxists. And the cultural Marxists are the liberals, the woke, the people who want, you know, lesbian and gay rights, the people who want human rights. So we get there. Point four, what do you do about it? Well, in the, fa in the fascist version, in the, the right-wing populist version, you set up a party and carve out a position within democracy whereby you can start to set the agenda. In the fascist uh, ideology, you prepare. You, it, it's called prepping. You, you, uh, you, you buy lots of tins of beans and you store them in your, uh, your basement. Uh, it turns out with, you know, in most cases, you know, Nazi regalia and guns. And why that? Why do you prep? During the prepping, you, 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 you enact symbolic violence. So the violence isn't there, as it with the, the National Front in the 1970s, to literally try and force Pakistanis to move out of Leicester. It's there to tell a story. And when you enact the violence, even January 6th, in, in it, violent as it was, I think five people died on January 6th outside the Capitol Hill, compared to what might happen in 2024, it was a storytelling exercise. It tells people, this is what it will be like when the big thing happens. And point five of the new fascism is what the big thing is. It, day X, the, the day when Western society collapses in, an, in a global ethnic civil war. That's what they expect. No, the way fascism works is to tell that five-part story Great replacement, liberalism's the enemy, cultural Marxism the instigator, prepping uh, and symbolic violence, and then day X itself. You tell that over and over again on social media through action. Any conservative who is consciously playing a part in propagating that story is facilitating fascism, even though they stand there in their lovely Chanel suits and they're, you know, and they're, you know, uh, backed by the, the sort of um, church-going middle classes of places like South Norfolk and Oxfordshire, what they're doing is, is, is just as, as, as facilitating of fascism as, for example, um, Alfred Hugenberg's uh, German National People's Party, you know, which was a kind of UKIP of its era, uh, it, it promoted the ideology. It just didn't have the guts to go on the streets uh, dressed in lederhosen and kick people. Uh, it left that to the, the to the Sturm up Thailand. Yeah, this and certainly if, if, if we think about those five stages, you know, three of them are very vocally advocated, yeah. I think, by mainstream conservatism. And I guess the prepping and the day X is, is left to the sort of GB News and, and the, the, yeah. the and moment. Yeah, anyway. interesting has been this week, both the, uh, at the Tory party conference, yeah. disco dancing with Farage. Farage is a key uh, voice on GB News. So is... Uh, Lee Anderson, so is Jacob Rees-Mogg. So they, they have used G, GB News to launder uh, fascism into the Tory party. Why? Because GB News overtly, it, what does it do? It spreads conspiracy th theories. So that's the other thing. The attack on truth, the attack on verification, the attack on, uh, on the two institutions that fascists believe speak ex cathedra without justification. The two institutions are the media and universities. So you attack the media and universities. All that's going on in GB News. Uh, queries about, you know, of course, we've also got this theory of world government. That's another, you know, what's happening is all forms of Nazi ideology in the modern era have to be um, laundered as as new theories. So the, the, the theory that a Jewish conspiracy controls the world has, has mutated into the, the World Economic Forum led by Klaus Schwab, uh, controls the world, and it's trying to impose 15-minute cities on us. Well, we hear that from the platform of the, the Tory conference. Uh, so, look, I'm not worried about them. I, I you know, 
the people voting for them are not fascists, um, but what they're doing is that they're legitimizing uh, that they're legitimizing an extreme form of right wing populism as as their ideology, and equally important, they're delegitimizing liberalism and social democracy. They're saying that a relatively liberal uh, Scottish Nationalist Party, Scottish National Party, sorry, that a very moderate Labour Party, that a Welsh government that is, you know, wholly within the 100-year traditions of Welsh Labourism and liberalism, I would argue, are the are alien to Britain. Uh, and that only this form of anti-woke ideology that basically says, well, we heard it from Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, a hurricane of immigration is destroying our culture. Only that is British. So, you know, this has big implications for us, but I'm glad to say the one thing I would agree with Jane and Ganesh, who's been wrong on everything with, uh, is we're not the worst country. The, the, the weakest link, you know, in, in the 1930s, the, the communist tradition used to try and identify what's the weakest link in the world system. Well, it's very obvious what the weakest link in the world system is. The key to the international situation is America. Um, we wake up uh, in November 2024 with Trump as president. That is a legitimation of, uh, of insurrectionary politics. He'll pardon the insurrectionaries. He'll try to jail uh, large parts of the democratic federal uh, administration that exists today. Uh, the states, uh, the, the relationship between the state and the federal government will, will erupt. Um, Biden pointed it out. Trump also wants to fundamentally strengthen the powers of the president within the, con the, 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 the federal constitution. Um, all bets are off. And of course, he will walk away from NATO. He will walk away from support for Ukraine. And Trump, and I think after that, Russia will walk permanently into parts of Ukraine that it doesn't currently occupy. So yeah. that's how critical this question of the future of American democracy and defeating this far-right fascist alliance is. Yeah. Well, I, I want to, because you sort of set it up neatly for me, I want to come on to Ukraine. And of course, you know, we're, we're speaking on the day that America doesn't have a speaker, a fundamentally important constitutional role. And as, as a byproduct of that, um, there is, I think there's $5 billion left of its support for Ukraine, which will, will, will run out very quickly. Um, but Ukraine, of course, is the place where fascism has in, in the modern era turned in, into a, you know, an actual war between two two well-armed countries. Uh, and you, you spent a lot of time uh, engaging with, with Ukraine. I know that you've been involved with, with the labor movement there, expressing solidarity. But you've also had to struggle against a kind of pushback from the left in parts of, of uh, Europe um, with with this sort of idea that this is somehow an imperialist war, that somehow, you know, Russia has justified uh, reasons for acting. So could, could you talk a bit about that and, and what, yeah. what, what sits behind that? So, yeah, b b before I do, I, I will just say that the left's, parts of the left have betrayed Ukraine and they've betrayed their own principles. But before we talk about them, let's talk about the wider problem that, that, that exists. Um, that, first of all, um, we have conservative political elites that buy into the idea, as I do, that Ukraine is the front line of our self-defense. That, that before we talk about principle and upholding international law, it, the security of a, a country like Britain only depends on the existence of the charter system. You know, we, we, we exist, there are bigger countries than, than us that, despite our military spending, which is high, could squash us um, if there wasn't a, a system of international law and treaty. If we go back to a pre-Westphalian system of total breakdown, um, our, our security will be peanuts. Um, so maintaining that system is really important. And yet the problem is, Having the impulse, you know, eventually Macron did the right thing. Johnson was enthusiastic to, to support Ukraine. Uh, Biden obviously is, you know, uh, enthusiastic to support Ukraine. Baerbock and Habeck in Germany, uh, as, alongside Schultz, I think have been exemplary. Great. But the Western system is not mobilized to support Ukraine. It is not. 
you you have not got politicians saying, as I would, given the chance, look, we, this is an existential conflict. If you, Putin crushes Ukraine, Poland is next, Estonia is next, Finland is next. The Finnish, the Finns understood that. The Finnish left, who I had had a lot of contact with, understood it really clearly. Anybody who's seen close up what Russian fascism is like understands if you then ally that to the historical knowledge that it doesn't stop, give them, you know, you give them northern Czechoslovakia, they take the whole of Czechoslovakia. Uh, you give them half of Poland, they take whole of Poland and the Soviet Union. It, that's what happens. Um, that realization is not there in the in the Western political elites. There's extreme frustration among those of us who are engaged. You know, I was briefly in Ukraine in the five days before uh, the war started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I left 24 hours before it started. I haven't been back since... Uh, for reasons we might discuss. But um, th this movie, 20 Days in Mariupol, um, which is doing the rounds, just shows you exactly what it does look like. And, and it looks like the worst of the Syrian civil war. It looks like World War II. Um, it doesn't look like um, a conflict against ISIS or even it doesn't look like the Gulf War at its worst. It looks like the mass killing of civilians. And... Um, by with modern means against which the ordinary person is completely um you know it doesn't matter whether you're a hero or a or a, you know you have built muscles and you can shoot a uh, an ak-47 you know you, you you're not going to survive in this so that's the kind of war we're talking about this is coming down the barrel at western society unless it's stopped and deterred and deterred by prevention uh so I don't, before we, I, I can talk a bit about the left and what's wrong, but, but we must, I, I'd say, I don't think Rishi Sunak, I don't think the Labour front bench are out there enough. I mean, they've done everything right, but they're not explaining to the population that, you know, we might have to make sacrifices of, that we don't want to make, like, you know, how much money we're going to spend on arms to Ukraine, how much money we're going to spend on beefing up our own defences. Um, Look at it. The, the two front benches are in a kind of stasis. The Tories are trapped with an aspiration of spending 2.5% of GDP on, on defence. Putin has just hiked his defence spending from 35 to 6%. The, Estonian, the, the, the outgoing head of the Estonian intelligence service has basically said, Putin's got five years. He can rebuild his army in five years. Now, could probably rebuild it a little bit quicker. With if the Chinese were prepared to export military capabilities to to Russia, we don't know whether that's on or off the table. If there's a ceasefire, so look. Number one point: the Western elites need to get serious. Number two point, which we'll come to, and I am part of the left. Th this has convinced me that there are two lefts. There's there 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 and there as E. P. Thompson said in the seventies, the Edward Thompson, the the Marxist historian. There's two Marxisms. They're incompatible. Uh, what one is a doctrine of, of 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 an ideology, and the other one is a tradition of critical reason. And what's happened is I found myself, you know, not simply arguing with, but being vilified by, and indeed, you know, actually, you know, vilified and threatened, you know, harassed by um, people who I thought who I would agree with on almost everything else, certainly on questions of economic policy. And how how did we get how did we get how did we get there? For me, it's just really simple. 
Late 20th century Marxism, for many people, became a, a theory of substitution. You know, the working class clearly is not, you know, the, the late 20th century working class, even when it was occupying factories, as my dad did, and carrying out the heroic one-year-long miners' strike, was not revolutionary. It wasn't anti-capitalist. Um, so if you're against capitalism, you, you must look for a for a, an agent of history to overthrow it. And until 1989, we had one, which is the Soviet Union. That's why so much of Western Marxism was you know, dominated by the question of, are we for and against the Soviet Union? I wasn't. One of the first things I did uh, politically was to go to Russia in 1992, a month after the fall of Yeltsin, to try and help build an anti-Stalinist labor movement in Russia. And I came away understanding that was going to be a very hard, almost impossible task. But for the modern left, you know, A, we've got this, this constant desire to see forces that are other than working class people as the agents of progress in history. And so you could look at, you know, it, for a while it was Venezuela, in the, for a while it was Nicaragua, then it was Venezuela. Some people thought of Cuba. Once the Soviet Union had gone, um, eventually, unfortunately, in the minds of some people, it has, it has migrated to become what they now call, its latest iteration is BRICS plus. So, so China is the great challenger to American hegemony. He American hegemony underpins modern capitalism. So anything that under undermines American hegemony is going to undermine capitalism. What is more, you could say Putin's a, a thug, Putin's a, you know, a crazed thug who's uh, simply created an oligarchic criminal elite, but Xi Jinping is part of a party that has brought 800 million people out of poverty. So there's not just a kind of blind, the blind watchmaker theory of history, whereby people do, you know, people do progressive things against their own ideology. Xi Jinping thinks he's a Marxist. Xi Jinping is an anti-imperialist. And so you've got this pole of attraction that says the PRC is progressive, and then therefore... Anything that reorders the world in favour of this PRC, the multipolar world, without international law and uh, universal standards, is good. And guess what? Xi Jinping and Putin signed a joint declaration on the 4th of February 2022. To this very end, Putin is unconsciously doing the work of Chinese Marxism. And I'm sorry, uh, you know, Arthur, there are probably hundreds if not thousands of people out there in Britain on the left who, who implicitly believe that. And their actions then pursue the, the strategy. What are their actions? They, they've spent the best part of two years trying to disarm Ukraine. And their chief spokesperson is a person I supported and tried to make his project work, Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and that's, that's the problem we're in. Fortunately, the Labour Party has proved very resistant to that. We only had 11 MPs sign up to the idea that uh, the war was caused by NATO, NATO expansionism, and and 10 of those 11 quickly abandoned that when they were told, you're out of the party. Um, and many of them, I think, had signed up out of it, lack of, lack of engagement, lack of real understanding. Um, so the problem comes not from within the labor movement. There's there's a bit of support for this position in the trade unions. Uh, the RMT has that position. Uh, it's some of its key bureaucrats, are, one of them in particular, had traveled to the Donbass to say that Russian separatists in the Donbass were anti-fascist heroes. Um, more worrying is was the is the two unions, the UCU and the, and the NEU, have both recently I mean, the UCU passed an anti-Ukraine position at its conference, and there was immediate outrage among large numbers of university lecturers saying, what the hell's going on? Um, less high profile at the Trade Union Congress, the, the, the NEU, which is the main teachers union, was on the verge of opposing solidarity with Ukraine. And again, only a, an outcry by its own membership stopped its narrow far-left bureaucracy uh, from, from making the similar mistake. So what, what I've been engaged in is, is, is practical solidarity. There are many in the trade union movement, you know, 
I went to when I went to Kiev. I went with Mick Whelan, the head of Aslev. You know, we're on strike today, and uh, Chris Kitchen, the head of the NUM, who you know, despite being shrunken, small, and actually as a union, have been quite prone to that Morning Star Stalinist uh, politics. From day one, had no doubts whatsoever that the survival of their comrades in the Donbas mining area depended on defeating Russia. So we, what? The frustration is through Ukraine Solidarity Campaign, which is a left campaign and has links with the KVPU union in, uh, and the two left, small left parties in in um, in, uh, in in Ukraine. It, the, the frustration is that we haven't been able to scale what we do. The the aid efforts of governments are are critical. What we are doing is largely symbolic. It matters, you know. We're raising money for a specific hospital for for. for you know, we have personally sent everything from SUVs, you know, station wagons painted green over to, uh, you know, to, to laser thermal imaging, which of course you can't send, but you can, you can, you can legally get from one country to another into Ukraine. Um, it's peanuts compared to the, you know, literally one of the, one of the station. I mean, l- let me put it in the abstract rather than to, to talk about the specific, um, a station wagon sent to the front in Ukraine by a Western NGO will probably last about a week before becoming a bullet-riddled wreck. They're going through about a thousand a week uh, at the front because these auxiliary vehicles are desperate because you you, you don't want to run supplies in a in a, in a Bradley back backwards and forwards. So that's what we're doing, and I think the practical aspect of the solidarity. The next phase for me is comes. I think we're going to see a Russian counter counter offensive. I think we're going to see Russian rearmament. The the real Russian counteroffensive is the American election, of course, the Slovakian election as well, the Polish election. What's at stake in the Polish election is not just populist right wing versus neoliberal Donald Tusk. It is if Tusk uh, and his allies win, which include the left, the the, the far left people I would uh, sympathise with, Razem. If if the liberal left win. Then support for Ukraine is solidified in uh, in Poland. So the counteroffensive is a hybrid warfare into our society. And the final thing I'll say about the the far left opponents of or the far, far left allies, they're de facto allies of, of the Kremlin. One of the most telling things about them is their refusal to accept the concept of hybrid warfare. The concept that there is operating within our society on offensive hybrid uh, engagement run from Russia using proxies that aims to, di- to disrupt and disorganize Western democracy. There, I will, there are literally influential people on the far left who say this is a, this is a conspiracy theory. It, it, it's, no, it's, not, it's nothing new. Nothing's really happening. They, they will not accept Trump's relationship to Russia. They will not accept. In fact, they spend a lot of time trying to debunk the Christopher uh, Steele you know, stuff. So, look, we're, we're in an information war. Get down in the trenches and fight it. Stop being distracted. Stop stop wishing that the old world would come back when the Tory party was like sort of David Cameron, Theresa May, and when the far left it was all kind of all pals together under Jeremy Corbyn. Sorry, the, there is a existential war for the future of the very society in which, for me, left-wing politics, social justice, climate justice, racial and gender justice, none of them can happen in a country like the Luhansk People's Republic. They can happen in Ukraine. Even with oligarchic, anti-democratic politics of, uh, of the Ukrainian right and far right, which exists, freedom, democracy, social justice are all possible in Ukraine. They're impossible when you cross the front line into the Russian-held territories. That's the new divide in the world. It's the most important one. It will be my message to people in politics. So one aspect of this, which is is sort of disturbing, is this kind of horseshoe effect. So obviously you have some on some on the far left who who have have aligned themselves on a supposedly anti-imperialist cause with what Russia's doing, and then of course they fight, they're in company there with the far right that we've already talked about. Is is that just a sort of accident, or is there something sort of almost deliberate about that? I think we have to go beyond the horseshoe theory. The horseshoe theory simply says the far left look like the far right because they're extreme and they don't inhabit the center. Uh, Something more has happened. I think one thing that has definitely happened. So 
I'm sorry to get philosophical here, but I think that we need to understand the philosophical roots of it. With the collapse of the Soviet Union, I assumed Stalinism would die out. The, the kind of Stalinist traditions that, you know, um, you know, for example, one of the leaders of the International Brigades, Andre Marty, boasted that he shot personally 500 members of the International Brigade who were Trotskyists or, or traitors. Okay, so when we celebrate the Spanish Civil War, we're also celebrating that. And a lot of people don't want to talk about that. But the, the Stalinist tradition is quite happy. You know, the Stalinist tradition would say it was right. Um, no, I thought that would go. I thought that would die out once the Soviet Union had gone. I was completely wrong. And why? I've been racking my brains and thinking a lot about why. For me, the, the, what, what is drawing a young generation... They exist in Poland, they exist here in the United Kingdom, they're there in Germany, they're there in America, of left-minded people, is they've been completely disarmed philosophically by their adherence to postmodernism and post-structuralism, which are systematic anti-humanist thinking. What links the, 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 the Zdanov era Soviet dialectical materialism with Foucault and kind of, you know, sort of post-Foucault leftism is, is the belief that human beings are created completely as social constructs by, by something bigger than a human being, history or his, the, the laws of history in the case of orthodox Marxism. In the case of Foucault, you know, human beings are just, humanity is just a social construct. It will be, as Foucault said, um, as easily wiped away. The concept of man will be wiped away as easily as a, as a face drawn on the sand as, as the tide comes in, okay? Well, what we're seeing in Ukraine is the literal enactment of that, the, the wiping away of tens of thousands of human lives by this Im imperious force of Russian fascism. And a whole generation of left-wing people don't care. They don't care because they don't see human, humanity at the centre of, uh, of the world. Um, so... So I'm trying to say, let's get beyond the, the horseshoe theory and understand the specifics. In addition, what we see are, so there are there are two sets of proxies, and they're quite clear. The New York Times um, did the easy bit of showing how networks of pro-China, pro-Chinese communist uh, influence have been created by something like, $65 million worth of dark money going through one specific business person. Uh, that's that's a, a New York Times investigation. It doesn't say the whole thing is like the strings are pulled from Beijing. There are people in this world who genuinely believe that China is a progressive country and they will do anything and everything to promote its interests in geopolitics. And that's what's happening. The darker thing is the creation of what I call the confusionist left confusionist in the sense that left-wing people whose biggest enemies are Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, me, uh, John McDonnell, uh, you know, it's got, it, it, I, the, the locus of this is this, uh, this uh, outlet called The Grey Zone, um, which has a bunch of journalists working for it, all of whom have had a relationship with Russia Today, RT, and all of, or Sputnik, and all of whom, well, most of whom, and many of whom, are now quite happy to share platforms with, with these very far-right pro-Russian uh, individuals and, 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 and intellectuals. Uh, no, that's not, that's not the same as, in my book I describe, the Communist Party youth of Germany in 1932 and the fascist youth of the Thailand sitting in the same... Uh, sitting in the same youth hostel, throwing insults at each other, singing songs, but basically not fighting. Because after lights out, one of them whispers to Daniel Guerin, this French anarchist who observed this. He says, that one of the communists says, look, really, we want the same thing. We want the end of capitalism. The fascists think they'll achieve it through a racial supremacy. We think we'll do it through communism. Okay, that's that was a phenomenon. We're now seeing something more. We're seeing a fascist ethno-nationalist dictatorship, totalitarian dictatorship in Russia, using its soft power to create and exploit this wide anti-humanism, this wide idea of anything that destroys America is good, and to educate people 
in a politics that are not, you know, I would imagine there was anti-Semitism, for example, in the German Communist Party in the 1930s, unfortunately. But the idea of sitting on a platform with fascists and and ruminating about the existence of a world government that or it it's it's like it but it, it's more extreme now it's more conscious for for one thing you can look up the red brown politics on wikipedia you can look up the fact that the german communist party did hold a joint referendum in brandenburg to overthrow the government with the fa- with the fascists they failed but you having looked it up to choose to do it is a different thing and that's why I say to my colleagues on the left, we're not dealing. I have this big problem with parts of the left of the Labour Party. The constant theme is why why are you so why are you making it such a big issue? We agree with each other on you know supporting the the, the Aslev strike. So why is it so big for you, Paul? For me, it's so big because we're not dealing with a difference between friends. We're dealing now with an enemy, um, and it's a really sad situation to be in. Um, on the American left, on the American wider left, it's pulling apart families. It's pulling apart, you know, as people go down because because the red brown politics doesn't just take you down the route of saying um, China's a, a workers' paradise and that the Tibetan uh, genocide, sorry, the the Uyghur genocide is, is is propaganda. It takes you down the the the, the, the black hole of um, COVID paranoia, it, uh, anti-vax, so. I think the left, there are some individuals on the left who I think have stood up and been very clear. Paradoxically, one of them was someone I was quite highly critical of before, Slavoj Žižek. Uh, uh, obviously, Bernard-Henri Levy has, has stood up. And, and there are, among left liberalists, I think, a, a series of figures, Tim Snyder, uh, for example, who've, who've stood up. But the left intelligentsia has been has been less than exemplary so far. And it needs to wake up. It needs to wake up because the, the, the theme we've been talking about, the theme of a lot of my intervention at the moment are is it's going to get worse. If Russia rearms and the next on the list is Estonia, then forget 2.5% GDP defence spending. Um, probably forget, it's really sadly, probably forget some, some human rights. Um, in wartime, in the Second World War, you know, some human rights were suspended. I don't advocate doing this now, but if Russia, you know, I certainly do, for example, advocate a very tough uh, legislative approach to hate speech and disinformation. Uh, unlike in America, where First, Am- First Amendment disbars us from dealing with this, I'm a big, big fan of a 1938 article by a German-American jurist called Karl Lowenstein entitled Militant Democracy. I think we have to do militant democracy all over again. That is banning hate speech, cutting off funding from right-wing parties, banning uniforms, um, banning marches that threaten people. Um, it's all terribly uh, illiberal, but the world. But to, to defend liberal democracy, you have to militantly do so. That feels like a sort of a, a, a fascinating point to, to draw this particular discussion to a close. I suppose my, my final uh, question for you was... Right at the beginning, you 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 mentioned that your book is as much about you know what fascism fascism is about as about how we defeat it, um, and you've talked eloquently about you know that that Western governments aren't doing enough in 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 connection with Ukraine, but are they doing enough domestically? I mean, we we look at we look at the AFD. You've mentioned Poland. You you look at France. Uh, we have our own version of this challenge here in the UK. Yeah. Is enough being done? Well, for me, there are three. In the book, I argue there are three things you need to do, and each of them is a, a lesson from the 30s. One is the popular front. At a certain point, you have to make an overt alliance, not just at the top, but at the grassroots, embodied in local committees and local organisations between liberalism, social democracy, and the and the far left. In in the modern era, that means Green parties, it means social, Scottish National Party, Plaid Cymru, etc. Um, a formal electoral alliance to defeat this alliance of the elite and mob, which is what fascism, far-right politics is, that's going to have to happen in the context of defeating Trump. And I'm, I'm not certain that Biden is the, the right front person for it, but I am certain that, the, that, that 
we, we need a far more overt alliance of the left and the centre in America to defeat Trump. The centre includes Republicans. Uh, it, there are moderate Republicans. Whatever the, Some people say there are no moderate Republicans. There are. I've met them. I know them, some of my close friends. You know, people who would normally vote Republican, cannot vote Trump, have to believe that they are not in some way endorsing the politics of Sanders, Cortez, the squad. Okay, That's what the popular front was. Number two, militant democracy, enforce the rule of law, have no apologies, make no apologies about arresting fascists, putting them in jail, banning their websites, the rest. But point three, what I call the anti-fascist ethos, I think is the critical thing. It's interesting how Trump chose to create Antifa as the threat. Violent anti-fascism, he talks about the radical left and violent Antifa all the time. You've got to be proudly anti-fascist. Our, our parents and grandparents' generation were. And unless politics is out there saying we are anti-fascist, I mean, how can Suella Braverman use the words she'd used this week and, and in any way really believe that the people who then act on them, which are the guys who are downloading terrorism manuals, most right-wing, uh, most people, people from the far right who are in British jails right now haven't killed or attacked anybody. All they've done is downloaded terrorist material and discussed doing something. Some have, but most are not. She is the owner. She is the owner of the prevent strategy. She is the owner of anti-terror legislation that puts those guys in jail. How can she really believe that in that task when she's spouting the same rubbish herself? So, you know, Building and defending an anti-fascist ethos, I think, is the thing to do. And I, my book ends on a very positive note. It ends with a description of how the, the cast of Casablanca came to be, came to be in, in Hollywood. They were a cast of, of refugees and anti-fascists. And what films like that did is that they synergized and synthesized leftism and liberalism into a wider anti-fascist doctrine that, that actually both liberalism and liberal conservatism and social democracy, at some point, all thought this has got out of hand. Anti-fascism has got its like own ethos, and it's bigger than everything. Well, it was. Movies like Casablanca, movies like The Way Ahead, one of my favourite British war propaganda movies, uh, are show how an anti-fascist ethos actually came into being during the late 30s and early 40s. I think we're going to have to do that all over again. If we do, we can defeat it in most places. Hungary may be gone for another generation, maybe Slovakia, um, probably not. Slovakia is looking more, more positive. Um, the, 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 the positive note I want to leave people on is that our grandparents did face an e this on an even bigger scale and they did, did, they did defeat it, but it actually me means ordinary people just deciding they've had enough of, this, of the rubbish that they're hearing uh, from the right-wing ideologists and deciding that this is the, I think this is a critical thing. However attached you are to the individual project that you're obsessed with, whether it's gay rights, whether it's human rights, whether it's refugee rights, whether it is simply you know, building an energy co-op in your local community, all these things are brilliant. None of them can survive under fascism. Fasci fighting fascism is the number one thing and the frontline fight against fascism is the American election and the war in Ukraine. That's my kind of worldview. And I, I'll, I'm doing my best through my journalism to try and just convince people to prioritise. Fantastic. Well, th this uh, this conversation is definitely uh, part of that. And, and it's been amazing. It, I feel like I, I've attended a, a really fascinating seminar. All Mason rally. <laughs> it's a, it's a, well, it, we need to rally the listeners. So no, thank you so much for joining me today, Paul. A pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Lines. If you're not yet a subscriber to this podcast, please consider becoming one via whichever platform you use to listen. It won't cost you anything and it means you won't miss a single episode. And if you've enjoyed it, please give us a good review and spread the word. Tell people about it. I hope to see you next time. Goodbye. Behind the Lines with Arthur Snell has been a Vinyl Street production.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.